It's Raw, It's Real, It's Unkempt, a podcast for founders, investors, and entrepreneurs hosted by me, Leanne Kemp, Queensland's Chief Entrepreneur. This week, I talked to Amali de Alwis, the UK Managing Director for Microsoft for Startups. She's also the former CEO of Code First Girls and a general all-round superstar of tech startups and entrepreneurs and femalepreneurs. Plus, I'll talk this week about my experiences in first-time funding. Now, that's Leanne explaining in its finest. Amali, it is great to have you on Unkempt. We were just reminiscing. It's got to be easily a year ago since we last saw each other in London. And in that time, of course, you wear so many hats. The Managing Director of Microsoft for Startups in the UK, a board member as well at the National College for Digital Skills. Again, another board member for the Institute of Coding. There's six, seven, eight hats you're wearing right now. And I hope, of course, you're matching them with fantastic shoes. Let's talk about Code First Girls, an incredible program built out by you. And I remember in the early days of starting Everledger, I was mentoring and speaking with girls in your program. And looking back now, what an acclaimed journey you've had. Give us a little bit of an insight in what it meant to build out Code First Girls, which is now well known as a multi-award winning social enterprise, working with companies, women, men directly to support women into the tech industry. Thanks very much, Leanne. It's such a pleasure to be joining. And yeah, it has been almost a year, I think. And I I, I think about the time where we met sort of, you know, four or five years ago, where you were sort of starting out with Everledger and I was just starting out with CodeFest Girls and how much, you know, both sides have sort of grown. Um, So it, it was really an incredible journey. And I think, you know, reflecting on both what we did Um, But also, I think around the timing of when we did it, I think that was a really um, sort of interesting time to be building that type of company because we were talking, uh, obviously pre-COVID, but also uh, pre-gender pay gap reporting, Um, you know, that the whole uh, discussions around tech and diversity were really sort of starting to to boom. Um, I think for us, it was really around building the right product, the right company, tackling the issue in the right way, but also it being the right timing. So people had at that point, I think, gotten tired of just talking about things and were wanting to actually have some sort of action, make some sort of changes. And I'm sure it's something you've sort of seen over the you know recent years as well, which is this real um, momentum around you know trying to support greater diversity in our workplaces and particularly within the technology sector as well. You know, there are so many reasons to teach programming to girls and coding is empowering and give girls an equal shot. And in fact, let's reminisce for a moment. Remember that mentoring moment when I gathered at the end of a program and I think I taught the girls how to shot tequila. I don't think that was really what we were talking about (laughs) in giving girls an equal shot. (laughs) I think that was definitely one of the nicest endings to one of our our workshop days, definitely. (laughs) So giving girls an equal shot... Look, in my experiences, it increases their odds of having well-paid STEM jobs and those jobs also have a potential to reduce the pay gap and boost the average woman's pay significantly. Tell me a little bit, why should girls learn to code? And as a parent, is there anything you can do or we can do collectively to get our girls more interested in programming? 
Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, I I genuinely do think that everyone needs to learn how to code. And it's not about all of us being software developers, because goodness knows that would probably be a a slightly terrifying world if we all were. Um, But it is about saying, look, technology is the foundation of society these days. There is no such thing as a non-tech business. And for anyone who wants to be working in fast growth sectors, in areas which are uh, well paid, in uh, an industry which is both innovative and exciting and, you know, spreads across the globe as far as, you know, future proofing your skill set. I really can't think of a better industry to kind of focus on than the technology sector. Technology is the thread that sits across all of our industries, right? Wherever you go, it's not just around, you know, people sitting in a basement anymore, you know, uh, coding in, in a dark room. It is front and center of growth of all of our companies, from finance to medicine, from law to fashion. For our young women who are thinking about, you know, growing their careers, fulfilling their, their ambitions, and being able to make use of a skill set which will take them through all of those industries, I think you really can't do better than learning the basics of coding because it allows you to just speak the language and understand those fundamentals of how you build things in this modern age. You know, and I, I really do think it's, you know, if, if you draw a comparison, if you think about learning a second language, right? You might learn a little French, you might learn a little uh, Chinese, you might learn a little German. It doesn't mean that you're going to go and write literature in those languages. But it does mean that when you go to those countries, when you're navigating the world, that you can speak a little and you can speak enough to get yourself directions, to to make yourself basically understood. And most importantly, to understand what is in the world around you as well. And that for me is really the fundamental thing around coding. It just helps you to connect with the world that it is now in a better way um, than you would be without that skill set. Amali, you are definitely speaking <coughs> my language. So let's swing over now to your new role as Microsoft, the director of startups. You know, there's an essential, intangible something in startups, an energy and a soul. Company founders sense its presence, so do to early employees and customers, and it inspires people to contribute talent, money, enthusiasm and fosters this huge sense of deep connection and mutual purpose. Tell us why Microsoft invests so much time and resources into this space. The mission of Microsoft is to help people to do more. And that's that's really what our software is about. That's what the hardware is about. That's what all the support programs are about. And for me, this idea of a sort of a mutual gain space where you know, what can we do which both supports people, supports companies, and supports sustainable good growth within sort of corporates? That's why Microsoft invests in startups. Because fundamentally, if there is a startup who is doing us the honor of building their products and services based on our products and services, it is absolutely within our sort of mutual interest to help them to grow, to help them to be more successful, to help their staff and developers within their companies to build better. And just to really think about how we can leverage not only our technologies, but also our strengths as companies. So thinking about, you know, how do you build ethical AI? How do you build, um, you know, uh, energy saving devices, which can help you to be carbon neutral, for example, 
all of these things which as Microsoft, we're investing time, money, and resources into developing, into thinking about, into uh, providing thought leadership and running in our own businesses. It is part of our responsibility as a, as a large corporate to help share some of that information and help those companies who are working with us to be successful uh, as well. Look, you've been recognised by the British Empire with incredible letters after your name in the work that you put together by growing out and building Code First Girls. Um, weave together to me the positioning around social enterprise, Microsoft for startups, and how do we actually engage differently in this space to be able to enable this stakeholder view of the world? Social enterprise 10 years ago was never heard of. It was either you're a not-for-profit or you're for a profit. Can you weave those two together for me? I personally think that pretty much every business should be a social enterprise. And for me, my background prior to Code First Girls was in large companies. I worked for large corporates. I worked for um, TNS, which was a big brand and marketing research consultancy. I worked for PwC, which is a professional services firm. And with all of those companies, and, and this is something which I personally believe, is that companies have a role and responsibility to play, not only around providing employment, not only around obviously helping us to navigate the world, generate income, pay taxes, but also to recognize that it is a part of society. And when I moved to Code First Girls, that didn't change. Whether you are running a for-profit or a not-for-profit company, for me, doesn't actually make a difference. What does make a difference is how you participate in the world. And regardless of your company structure, whether you contribute to the world in a positive way. And there's always this tension, I think, with any sort of business. And I, it was, um, I remember seeing, I think it was Roy Singham talk, who was the, uh, the chief exec, he was the founder of Thoughtworks a few years ago. And he mentioned this really interesting point, which was around, as businesses, we have to manage that tension between good, doing good and doing harm, you know, because as human beings, we do harm the world, right? There are things which we do which don't add to the world. We consume energy, we consume resources, you know, we cut down forests, all of these types of things. But as business, we have an opportunity to think about how we can do good back as well. And I think that tie between whether it's a social enterprise or a profit generating enterprise, balancing those two sides and saying to ourselves, can we leave the world in a slightly better place than they than we found it in? I think that's a really fundamental thing, regardless of what, what the company is structured like. Rightio, listeners, if you don't have a pen and a piece of paper in front of you, get cracking and bring it forward because there are incredible little morsels of information coming out of Amali right now. We're going to look from the outside in. Female founders. Many often highlight the glamorous side of being an entrepreneur. There's an undeniable underside to attaining success as a founder of a company. Between developing a business plan, raising capital, making personal sacrifices, the list will go on and on. The job is often more challenging and even at times alienating than it is alluring. Have you seen any attributes that characterise female entrepreneurship? Traits that can be nurtured and developed, not only in female entrepreneurship, but in all entrepreneurs, whether that be a cognitive layer, a way to have a consciousness about people and planet, 
Are there any sort of insights around female entrepreneurship that you think gives this generic rise across all entrepreneurs? I, I always find it difficult to, I think, generalize because, you know, people are different right? Female entrepreneurs are all different. Male entrepreneurs are all different. People who don't identify as either male or female, you know, might be different as well. But I I do think that putting aside, you know, the the whole nurture nature argument to a certain extent, as far as I, I don't, I don't believe genetics have that big a role to play in how we sort of behave as human beings. But I, I, I do think that as far as in companies, at least, I do think, though, that Um, how we are socialized, how we are brought up, what we see from, you know, our, our parents needs from, you know, growing up as being things which women should do things which men should do the ways that women should behave. I think that does make a difference. And for example, when we think about things which women are trained to do, we are trained to be more socialized, we are trained to reach uh, consensus. And it, it, there was some really um, interesting work, which was done by a woman called Pat Hame. So she was, uh, she's an occupational psychologist, I think, and she did some work uh, during the 60s and 70s and onwards, looking at the differences in male and female behaviors in office spaces. And what she found was that for a lot of the men in a traditional landscape, that they reached a sort of a happy place in their offices by establishing hierarchy, right? And it didn't almost matter who was above the other, but just knowing where you were and how you could work your way through was really important. For women, what she found was that they reached consensus. The, the having a happy outcome was around each person having a view into things, feeling that you had reached a sort of a common understanding uh, between you. And her observation was that actually both systems were fine and it wasn't that either was better or worse than the other. But what caused problems was where we misunderstood some of those intentions. So, for example, you know, it might be that the men are looking at the women and saying, oh, but, you know, why can't they reach a decision? Why aren't they showing leadership skills? You know, why do they keep having to talk about things? Whereas the women might be looking at the men and going, you know, why are they always kind of, you know, bullying each other? Why can't they have a conversation about things? Why aren't they listening to each other? So I think for me, that's a really sort of interesting um, comparison as far as, you know, when we're talking about what women can bring to things, we, we do sort of have things which we are trained to do to a certain extent as part of society. And I think both of those aspects of both you know, taking a sort of a more hierarchical leadership role, as well as being able to flex and reach consensus and being able to bring in people to have discussions and have that inequality and things, both are really critical. And I think any leader, male or female, it's about how you balance those and knowing when you should do one versus the other, I think, which is really important. I just love what you said. Actually, it resonates so deeply for me because I've spent the better part of 10 hours today in this exact framework and conversations grappling with this question myself. And I came up just before with a, you know, a fresher breath air thinking, Leanne, when it's engagement with people and teams, it's certainly not rocket science, it's neuroscience. And how do we weave that into the workplace even better? And finally, here we are. I love to give my guess a crystal ball to choose do you go back in time and tell your 15 year old self something to do or what would you do differently or cast your mind into the future and tell us what 2030 or 2050 looks like 
I'm guessing you're one that loves to reflect. What is it about the past? What would you redo differently? Yeah, I think absolutely. It's about the the reflection, partially because I'm really bad at looking into the future and I keep changing my mind about things. But thinking about what I would say to my 15-year-old self, I think it's really that the big thing for me is, is it's never too late and it's never too early. And I know that sounds a little bit strange, but I, I remember sort of as a child, as a sort of a teenager, you almost frame yourself. And I think this goes into adulthood to a certain extent as well, where you think, oh, I'm too, I'm too late to do this. You know, I'm too late to start a business. I'm too late to, I don't know, take up skydiving, whatever, whatever you choose to do. Either that or you, you're thinking, I'm too early. You know, I'm too early to take on a leadership role. It's too early to, to think about, uh, you know, starting my own company, whatever it is. And I think, if anything, the last sort of, you know, 15, 30 years have taught me is that it's never too late and it's never too early. You write your own story with life and people do things at lots of different stages. And, you know, to, to put almost the stereotypes to one side and just embrace the fact that, you know, we're, we're here if you're living in a, in a circumstance where I consider myself blessed to be able to live in a country which is stable, to have a roof over my head, to be educated, and to really see that as an opportunity to take, take life by the horns and, and make the most of it. You know, if you've been blessed enough to have that in your life, you know, do, do whatever makes you happy. And, and, you know, it's never too late. It's never too early. Um, you know, and hopefully you'll just find something really exciting, which you can continue to do with your life and, you know, continue on that journey. You know, Amali, thank you. Your wisdom, commitment and contribution is not only giving us the moment now to take sound bites forward, but there's so much you've invested in this generation that we're beginning to see shine into the next generation. It's been great to have you on Unkempt and not only then, it's been so good to see you again. Let's not wait another 12 months. Absolutely, Leanne. Been a pleasure to join. <laughs> now let me, Leanne, explain you. This week, I've been pondering first-time funding. As startups grow, entrepreneurs face a dilemma, one that many aren't aware of, well, initially. On the one hand, we have to raise resources in order to capitalise on the opportunities that sit before us. And if we choose the right investors, financial gains will soar. My research shows that a founder who gives up more equity to attract other co-founders, non-founding hires and investors builds a more valuable company than one who parts with less equity. The founder ends up with a more valuable slice too as the company grows. On the other hand, in order to attract investors and executives, entrepreneurs have to give up control over some of the decision-making. So choose money. How do you do it wisely? A founder who gives up more equity to attract investors builds a more valuable company than one who parts with less and ends up with a more valuable slice too. This fundamental tension yields the rich versus king trade-off. The rich option enables the company to become more valuable, but sidelines the founder by taking away potentially the CEO position and maybe even control over some of the major decisions. The king choice allows the founder to retain control over decision-making by staying the CEO and maintaining control over the board. But often, 
it leads to building a less valuable company. For founders, a rich choice isn't necessarily better than a king choice or vice versa, but what matters is how well each decision fits within the reason of their own choice to start the company. I often get asked questions about funding. Should I seek out angel investors, VCs, or do I fund it myself? When do I start raising capital? And after I speak to many investors, no one's biting. Why can't they see what I can see? I started my first business in 1996 when telephones had cords, Pokemon had just been introduced to the world, and the white pages was the Bible of contacts. Companies racing to the front of the telephone book based on the letters of the alphabet. So what did I do? I chose a company name starting with A. Well, here's what I've learned from my pursuit of funding and what can I, Leanne, explain you. First, set meaningful goals. Entrepreneurs must reconcile what they want with what they are willing to risk. And my top tips are, there's not one right way to do this. You'll probably make a few missteps along the way. And as long as they're not fatal wounds, things are going to be okay. Sure, there'll be pain and there's low points, but that's okay too. Take note of what's happening and always be responsive, adaptive, and open to a new way of doing things. Investors might not understand everything about your company, all those quirks that you love and everything that you've put your heart into. It's important to listen to what feedback you're receiving and to see how you can adapt what you're doing. My next tip, choose a partner, not a brand. Big brands might be recognizable to you, but if you're just another cog in the chain, a line on a spreadsheet, then you won't be a priority and you'll spend more time proving yourself to them than getting your own stuff done. Instead, choose a partner who's committed. Okay, well, maybe not quite as committed as you are, but choose your champion. You get what I'm saying. This is all about research and time. Don't mistake a quick win as the answer. Relationships take time to build, but they're always worth investment in them, particularly as time ticks slowly. Don't take it personally if a funder you love doesn't love you back. Remember, when you're in high school and dating, it's a numbers game. Keep on keeping on until you find the right fit. And there's those little moments when sometimes an investor will want you and you don't want them. Now, just because you're the one doing the asking doesn't mean you have to say yes to every offer in town. You can be choosy with your investors. Which brings me to my final point. Set a time frame. Don't give up too early, but don't hang around past your expiration date. There's nothing worse than the first rejection or the second or even the hundredth. But just because one person doesn't get your vision doesn't mean that the vision isn't good. That said, just like that old Kenny Rogers song, there's also a time to know when to fold them and when to walk away. Unkempt. It's hosted by me, Leanne Kemp, and produced by the Office of Queensland Chief Entrepreneur and our Mike and mates at the Content Division. Hey, you like what you hear? Well, head over to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more tips, why don't you visit chiefentrepreneur.qld.gov.au. Thanks for listening.